Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined on this episode by Jane Smiley who is an award-winning American novelist. Uh, She has published 15 novels, the most recent of which, The Strays of Paris, has just been published in the UK. She has also published two short story collections, five non-fiction books and eight young adult novels. Jane's first novel, Barn Blind, came out in 1980. Well, her novel A Thousand Acres won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1992. And prior to the release of The Strays of Paris, which was published in the United States last year as Perestroika in Paris, she wrote the highly acclaimed Last 100 Years trilogy of novels, Good Luck, Early Warning and Golden Age, about an Iowa family over the course of several generations. Jane is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and has also received the Penn Center USA Lifetime Achievement Award for Literature. Jane, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you. Um, to be here. It's great. The, the wonders of modern technology have linked us from Glasgow <laughs> to California. It's very good. I'm guessing, obviously, it's just an audio. I'm guessing that where you are might be slightly warmer than where I am. Yes, though it, it's it's in the 40s today, which is very cold for us. <laughs> it's below 50. We've put ourselves into very warm clothes or hide in the bed or something. Yeah, I'm still I'm still very envious. <laughs> I mentioned there that your your latest novel, uh, The Strays of Paris, is just coming out in the UK. I was I was curious. First of all, I'd mentioned that when it came out in the states, its title was Perestroika in Paris. And what was it that made made you change or made the title change when when it was brought out here? Um, I don't know. The the it was the English publisher that decided to change the title, and that's happened before. So I don't know why. Are you? I take it you're okay with that. What a, yeah, that's fine with me. I must admit, the title, the, the Strays of Paris, seems to fit really nicely with the, the book and the kind of what you're trying to say within the book. What I was going to do is just kind of let people, I was just going to read a wee bit to explain to people what the book's about, just to give them an idea of the story, if that's okay. Oh, sure. So the kind of summary of it is Paris is a spirited young racehorse living in a stable in the French countryside. That is until one afternoon when she pushes open, open the gate of her stall and travelling through the night, arrives quite by chance in the dazzling streets of Paris. She soon meets a German short-haired pointer named Frida, two irrepressible ducks, brilliantly called Sid and Nancy, and an opinionated crow. And life amongst the animals in the city's lush green spaces is enjoyable for a time. But everything changes when Paris meets a human boy, Etienne, and discovers a new otherworldly part of Paris, the secluded, ivy-walled house where the boy and his nearly 100-year-old great-grandmother live quietly and keep to themselves. As the cold weather of Christmas appears, the unlikeliest of friendships blooms between humans and animals. How long can a runaway horse live undiscovered in Paris? And how long can one boy keep her all to himself? The Strays of Paris celebrates the intrinsic need for friendship, love and freedom, whoever you may be. And I have to say, it's having read the book, it's it almost feels in a way strangely perfect for this time of like, there's kind of joy and there's hope, but there's a real, there's a gentleness to the story and with so much chaos going on in the world, it seemed to fit perfectly for me reading it at this time. Well, I'll, let me speak about that in a moment. I have to correct your um, what you said 
in one way because Paris would be very upset if I didn't. The horse in the book has just won a race over hurdles. She's not just escaping her uh, stall in the countryside. She's escaping from the race course. And that's important to the book because she actually takes her purse with her. And without that, she couldn't have survived. So as for the, uh, I don't know, the kindness, my experience of people and animals is they are mostly kind. And I couldn't even think of a bad person to include all of the all of the animal, all the animals and the people have their own issues, most of them survival issues. And I thought that was enough complexity for them. So I started writing it in 2009. So I didn't have any idea that when I finally got it published, it was going to be published now in this chaotic time. But I think it's a, I do think it's a relief and a good book to read in the chaos. Because one of the things that was, it was funny, I, I read, it was an interview, interview, I think, with you that I'm not sure if somebody had said to you, I don't know if it was at your agent or whoever said that this, you'll never get a film deal out of this book because there's no villain in it. <laughs> but I had to, I, I must admit, when I was reading it, I kept thinking, I'd be really disappointed if Pixar don't phone you at some point because I thought this, is, this would be, I, I think that's perfect for the cinema. Well, I certainly hope it works out. I do have somebody that's interested, so we'll see. We just knock on wood and hope for the best and all those things. And the other, the other strange thing that came into my head when I was reading the book, actually, I don't know if you remember the, the film Ferris Bueller's Day Of, mm-hmm. from back the, the kind of classic 80s film. And there's, a brilliant, there's always a quote that's always stuck in my head from that, and it's Ferris says at one point, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And I kept thinking of that during the, your book because this idea of, you know, this horse in Paris and then befriended by a dog and then a couple of mallards and the raven. But people are going around not noticing, or very few people noticing what's in front of their eyes because they are too busy. And it, that's what kept going through my head while I was reading your book. Well, another aspect of that is that she gets into Paris in November. And so it's dark and there's bad weather and people are rushing from place to place because it's cold, you know? So if I had said it, it would have been much more difficult to make it work if say she'd gotten into to Paris in May. But uh, so I had to think of, because it's an unlikely book, I had to think of various ways to make it a little bit more believable. And that was, and doing it in winter was one of them. Because also I think one of the, is it the, the gendarme, he, who always <laughs> he's always driven to drink because he keeps thinking he's hallucinating about this horse and, and I, I love that idea that you wonder if you know if a horse walked past your house and you would think I must be seeing things <laughs> yeah he was fun <laughs> but all the all the human characters were fun they uh and they and they do they do have some conversations about what the, what it turns out to have happened at yeah. the end yeah, it's nice the way that's all tied in. But I also like the fact that you don't differentiate between the, the kind of human and the animal characters. They're all just characters. So you'll have a conversation between two of the animals. And then, especially when the dog, you mentioned about the purse, when Frida the dog uses the money to go shopping, which is brilliant. But the characters, <laughs> the animal characters are very much characters and there's no differentiation, I don't think. No, I, I Frida the dog is based on a dog that we had who died of old age a couple of years ago. And Paris the horse is based on my horse, Paris, who is no longer a filly, I have to say. But um, what gave me the idea for Frida 
going and looking for food was that when we first got her one time, we looked up the stairs and she was sitting at the top of the stairs and she had all of the dog toys that belonged to her and all the other dogs together in her mouth. And it was a very funny picture. And she loved to collect things. She loved to carry things. I don't know why, but I figured she would be just the kind of animal to pick up the purse by the handle and carry it around. Yeah, because I think it's quite, there's a kind of real comedy to that. But then it's, again, it's like, I think that gives the, the, the character, the animal characters, the real characteristics of figuring out how this exchange of goods for money works. <laughs> Um, and then, the, and obviously, Jerome, the guy who sells her the food, he just buys into it as well, in a way. Well, he's a he's a kindly guy too. I mean, he all the humans have their theories when the animals appear. Um, each human has his his or her theory about what's going on, and a couple of the theories are a little crazy. A couple of theories are kind of realistic, but they're they're decent people, and they don't want to upend what's happening and so they they just allow it to happen frida is that frida discovers a plastic bag she first of all she looks inside the purse and discovers money and since her owner who died was a busker she understands the nature of money because she's spent her whole life sitting next to him sometimes acting out parts for example in the winter if she sits next to him and, sh- and trembles as if she's freezing, the people who, who donate will give him more money. So she knows that. So she understands money. And she realizes she's gone past the vegetable market several times. And she realizes if she takes some money to the vegetable market, that she can buy vegetables and food. So that's what she does to help feed Paris and also to help feed herself. And eventually, she um, she helps the humans too. Because it was we dogs do. My, in my experience, dogs are very helpful. Because it was we details that when I was saying to you how I, I thought it was cinematic. It was things like that that give it that for me that, that when I was reading that that's what made me think that would be brilliant to see on the screen because it works. It would work so well. I sure hope so. We'll see. Good. Well, I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> In terms of the, the podcast, what I like to do with, with everyone who's on the podcast is almost take you on a kind of literary journey of your life and just by getting you to choose some of your favourite and, and not so favourite books and obviously taking you back to childhood and ask for a, a favourite book from childhood. And the one that you've chosen is a book by C.W. Anderson called Afraid to Ride. And what was it about that book that, that stuck with you? Well, for one thing, C.W. Anderson was a, was a wonderful artist who'd put in his books, he put beautiful drawings of horses and their environments. You know, they might be in the woods or they might be on a track or something like that. Afraid to Ride was about a young woman who's fallen off a horse and she's afraid to get back on. And so the person who, uh, somebody who has a horse who needs to be walked, invites her to walk the horse around and sort of connect with the horse. The horse has problems too. And when I was a kid, the thing I wanted most in life was to connect with a horse. And so they do this ideal thing, which is just to walk around in the woods. She's leading him by the lead rope. He's looking around, she's looking around and they're becoming connected with one another. And then finally she trusts him and she gets back on and she's no longer afraid to ride. 
And so that's why I love that book. But it was also the drawings. The drawings were wonderful. I mean, have you if you always been surrounded by horses? Has it always been a has it been a kind of lifelong love with horses that you've had? Yeah, it's been it has been a lifelong love. I guess partly it was because of TV, you know, all those cowboy shows and horse shows on Saturday mornings that I used to watch. And then there was a pony ride near our house when I was five. I loved doing that. But I truly was obsessed until about the middle of high school. And then I thought, okay, I guess I'm done with that. But then I came back to it in my early 40s and I've stuck with it ever since. I wasn't familiar with C.W. Anderson because one of the things that struck me, part of the, his body of work, he wrote a, a series of books called Billy and Blaze. It seems to be that it wasn't just a series of books you know, for children, but it was also trying to teach people about the proper care of horses as well, which mm-hmm. reminded me very much of Black Beauty. The, yeah. the motivation behind that book, although it became a children's classic, was actually to try and highlight the, the plight of horses and, and to try and campaign against animal cruelty, which I think was yeah. the motivation for that. That was one I read too. But And a few years ago, I did an introduction to a republishing of Black Beauty. And I was really surprised at my reaction. My reaction was the same as it had been when I was 12 or 13 years old and reading it the first time. I burst into tears. I hadn't known about Sewell's life and why she wrote Black Beauty, but it makes perfect sense. And I wish it were still in the adult canon as well as in the children's book category because it's a it's a really interesting book because it's interesting to you know quite often when you read a book in certain stages of your life and I've, I've spoke to people before where they've chosen books from childhood or teenage years and then they go back to them you maybe have a different reaction at a later stage in your life because of maybe what you've experienced it's interesting that you you do have that same reaction to a book you've read you know when you were a child which I think is probably quite a, it's quite a nice thing as well because it kind of connects you back to that child again yeah I like to read books that I've already read before and see if I still like them and still have the same reaction to them. Are you ever worried when you do that? Because, you know, like a book that you maybe have had a a really strong affection for when you were younger, the danger of reading it when you're you're older and going, I don't like it anymore. (laughs) Well, I can't think of anyone that I've turned away from just off the top of my head, but... I do go from back from time to time and read early books. You know, obviously I mentioned at the start that you, as well as the, the 15 novels that you've written, the short story collections and non-fiction book, you've also written uh, a whole series of books for young adults as well. Is that something you kind of tap into the kind of things that you read or are interested in when you were younger and bring that to what you're doing now? Well, I did read a lot of horse riding books when I was younger, but One of the things I noticed about them when I moved to California, especially to the place where I live, was that this was an area where the approach to training horses changed from the old carrot and the stick approach to a new sort of attempting to make an alliance with the horse, a new style of horse training. The the people who originated it were a couple of ranch owners named Tom and Bill Dorrance. And that fascinated me. And so that's why I decided to write the young adult books. There's eight of them. Five of them are about a somewhat older girl whose father has a horse training ranch. And her job is to help train the horses. 
And she, in the first one, she gets bucked off and they hire this man who's based on Tom Dorrance to help figure out what's going on with this horse. And then she learns a lot from that. And then, so there's five books about that that are set in the 1960s. The next three, so in one of the books, I think it's volume two, the girl, the nine-year-old girl that she is, tra- is teaching is sort of like me in that she really, really, really wants a horse, which her parents can't afford, though they can afford some lessons. But she's not like me in that she's what we used to call contrary. And she has to do it her way and go her own way. So I wrote three books about her and they were a lot of fun because she really is an independent thinker, (laughs) even at 10 years old. I suppose that must, as you say, that must be the the joy of when you're writing, when you when you get a character, whatever age they are, that you really either relate to or you just love writing for <laughs> or writing about. Well, that happens in a lot of my books. Um, a lot of characters make me laugh. And it isn't always the ones that I think I'm going to really like. Sometimes it's ones that just pop up and then I become very fond of them. I knew I, in, the, in Paris, excuse me, in the Straits of Paris, I knew that I was very fond of Paris herself and of Frida, but I didn't know that I was going to become fond of the rat. <laughs> so let's yeah, that, not say more about the rat. But yeah, that would I take people by surprise. <laughs> I, I mentioned the, the two mallards that you'd said in Nancy, which I just, lo- I just loved that when you'd named them. I mean, I don't know if it's, I, I just immediately thought of the, from the, <laughs> from the, the punk, the 70s, the Sex Pistols. And I just thought, that's brilliant. Well, yes. Um, and I believe that they are the reincarnations of the real sex pistol <laughs> they, who, needed, who, who needed to learn a few lessons. And so, you know, they had to become mallards. Do you know, that's just enhanced my whole enjoyment of the book there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Um, in terms of the, your, your literary journey, if I can take you on to your next book choice, which would have been a book from kind of teenage formative years. And the book that you've chosen is a book called Giants in the Earth by Ovi Rolvag. And again, what was it about about this book that's made you choose that one? Well, that is a book about Norwegian immigrants to the Dakotas in the mid-19th century. And even when I was in ninth grade, I knew that my great-grandmother was a Norwegian immigrant in the mid-19th century, though she did not go to the Dakotas. But this is a farm family They're hoping for the best. And because of uh, various reasons, including obviously weather, they have a very difficult time. It's extremely dramatic. It's beautifully written. And it got me interested in all kinds of things. It got me interested in farming. I did grow up on a farm. I grew up in a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, But it got me interested in farming. It got me interested in the landscape of the plains. It got me interested in Scandinavian literature, which is very idiosyncratic. And it got me interested just in the psychology of families. It's a long book. It's complicated. I have no idea why they assigned it to us in ninth grade, but it really struck me. And I still think it's a great book. What age would you be then in terms of what, what age would ninth grade be? So obviously, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, ninth grade is uh, when you're 14. Because it's funny, just, you know, just some of the things you're saying there in terms of 
I was just wondering of the influence of a book like that, of when you then subsequently go and, and maybe kind of have a look at some of the books that you've written, the setting, the place, dealing with families, particularly that, that you know, that I mentioned earlier on the trilogy you'd written. I also thought you'd written The Greenlanders, mm-hmm. which would tap into that kind of Norse history as well. That, And I wonder if, if a lot of the seeds of that were sown when you read a book like Giants in there. Yes, absolutely. I just noticed how unique it was among the books, all the books that we read. And then when I got to college, I was very interested in language. I took Latin in high school. Um, And so when I got to college, I took Old English. And then when I got to graduate school, I took Old Norse. And I got very interested in the uh, Norse sagas. So there is a thread between giants in the earth and my interest in the sagas. And then when I got interested in the sagas, I thought about Greenland and I made up my mind that I was going to write my own sort of saga about the end of the Norse colony in Greenland. So, um, yeah, Giants in the Earth was very important to my sense of what was interesting and what was worth writing about when I was growing up. Because, again, I, you know, I mentioned your novel, A Thousand Acres, which won the, the Pulitzer Prize. And again, you know, landscape is very important in that as well. And, you know, working on the land. And again, that maybe taps back into some of the things you, you're reading a book that where things like mm-hmm. landscape suddenly become part of the, the storytelling, as it were. Yes. And um, Rolvag, who was a professor at the University of Minnesota, he was wonderful at evoking the details of the Northern Plains and how terrifying snowstorms could be, but how terrifying anything could be if the farm was, you know, always on a kind of iffy basis. So yeah, I think it's a great book. I think he, it's one of those ones that ought to be resurrected as something that people should read and should remember. I think it's a great book. Yeah. I was, I was curious of that, of whether, schools now in the states would still have that as or do you think it's kind of just dropped off the radar of high schools now i don't think they still teach that i mean i went to a particular school that taught it it wasn't on a general curriculum my school was a private school that taught uh pretty sophisticated books to young kids i mean the, one of the books we read in seventh grade i mean we were 12 was oliver twist and I didn't understand a word of it. And, you know, I was the dummy in the back of the room who raised her hand and said, well, why can't he have another helping of porridge? You know, I just didn't, <laughs> under, I just didn't get it. And I came to love Dickens. And, in, and actually, in the same year we were reading Giants in the Earth, we read David Copperfield. And that one I understood and really loved. And that turned me on to Dickens. So Dickens was a big influence too. And seventh grade, Oliver Twist, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be challenging. I mean, interesting, I'm actually just reading uh, David Copperfield for the first time just now. Oh. I've, I've read oh. other Dickens, but it's, it's one of the ones that I've never, I've never read. So I thought I need to make up for lost time. So I'm kind of halfway through it just now. How are you enjoying it? Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I mean, I think it's, it's maybe one of the, it's one of the easiest of, of maybe his books too. I think it is, yeah. It is because it's it seems very straightforward compared to some of the others. Although Oliver Twist is always my favorite because that was the very first one that I read, so I've always got a, a strong affection for that. 
I mentioned there just about, you know, the fact that your novel, A Thousand Acres, won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. That obviously then, I suppose, catapults you in terms of your career because of the, the kind of profile of, of that and the prestige of it. There'll be obviously positive sides of that, but did that add any extra pressure on you at the time when you were then going to write your next novel or your next novel because you're then Jane Smiley, Pulitzer Prize winning author? Well, it might have, but I was already deeply into my next novel. And so, and I liked it. It was, it was um, Moo, the um, comic novel set on a land grant university campus. And it was completely, it's already completely different from a thousand acres. And I was already well into it and I was already enjoying it. So, and the, and the publisher had already taken it. So I, I didn't feel any particular pressure to do a repeat of a thousand acres. Interesting you say that because I'd interviewed uh, Douglas Stewart, who wrote Shoggy Bain, which won the Booker Prize mm-hmm. last year and it did well, I think, in the States as well. And I think, again, he, by the time it was getting all this praise and prizes, etc., he's already, I think, had finished his second novel, although it's not come out yet. So I think, like you, it meant that he wasn't then thinking, you know, that, well, what am I going to do next? Because this one's been so successful. That's maybe the key, obviously, because you're then on to the next project and on to the next project. Yes. I mean, I think there are people like me and possibly like him who just want to write books and they want to do it their own way. I mean, when I was in eighth grade, so, you know, I was 12, 13, I guess I was 13. uh, One of my report cards read, she only does what she wants to do. And she thought that was not a compliment, but I think it was exactly the thing I wanted to be. It was to do what I wanted to do and see what happens. Listen, if people can go through their life and do that, and, and for example, what you've done, that's that's part of the key, I suppose, to happiness as well, if you're kind of doing what you want to do. Well, I think so. Yeah, I think so. That's quite nice then to look back and, and take that as a compliment. What did you say? It maybe wasn't meant as a... Well, I'm not sure what my mother thought of it. She probably rolled her eyes and said, yeah, it's true. <laughs> Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and Jane Smiley. And Jane, we're on to your next book choice, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is a book called Conceit by Mary Novick. Now, this is a book that's very obscure. It's out of print. I happen to have a copy that I bought, I think, at a used bookstore. But it's a wonderful book that's pretty much about John Donne. Um, but it opens in, in 1666 in London. It opens with the fire of London in 1666. And it's all written in the present tense. So the first, uh, the first line is, it is the 2nd of September, a Sunday at one o'clock in the morning. Samuel Pepys is making his way home from the Three Cranes where he drank too much mulled sack and sang himself hoarse. So the, what it does is, it just drops you right into 17th century London, into the literary world that exists, and then into the mind of John Donne. And I've never seen a historical novel that did that as well as this one. And I cannot figure out why it's out of print. So I would recommend it to anyone. And then I would say, but you aren't going to be able to find a copy. So we need to get the publisher to reissue it or at least put it in, out in digital. Because I don't think it's, it's not that old. I mean, I think it came out in 2007. So and that, that was her debut as well. 
yeah, it's really, it's really a shame. And I take it you just kind of stumbled upon it then just in a, a used bookstore? Yeah, I don't even know how it was that I found it. Maybe, it. maybe I found it in a used bookstore and just picked it off the shelf and said, oh, this looks interesting. But um, it's really a shame that it hasn't been digitized because it's, a, it's one of the best historical novels I've ever read. I mean, in terms of either recommending books to people or do you get books recommended to you quite a lot as books are, are, are people looking for you to recommend books because of maybe who you are and that kind of thumbs up from, from Jane Smiley means it's, you know, it's, a, it's a book worth reading? Well, I do get blurb requests, but I don't often accept them because I don't often have the time to read them. And I feel like I have to read it all the way through in order to blurb it. I also do occasional book reviews, and I enjoy that a lot. But, you know, this one is just that one I happened on. and Because I, I always wonder that about, you know, like the blurb idea on books of, as I say, I, I've spoken to other authors where, again, that you know, maybe their publishers are sending other books to them. Because I suppose it, it eats into your time as well of either what you're wanting to read for work or for pleasure, but then obviously your writing time as well. Well, also, I, I teach creative writing at the University of California in Riverside. So I have to read a lot of books in order to teach them. And we'll talk about a couple of those in, in a little bit. So I really don't have the time. And also, I'm not a fast reader. I'm kind of a slow reader. So I really don't have the time to do a lot of blurbs. But if something really strikes me, I will keep at it and blurb it. And how do you, how do you find, the, in terms of the teaching, is that something that you, I take it something that you enjoy doing? Oh, yeah, I love to do it. My students are all very interesting. The University of Riverside campus is very diverse. And I love the idea that my students, some, some of whom come from very troubled backgrounds, that they would get a voice and actually write about themselves and about their lives or their worlds or something. I think that American literature really needs these kind of writers. So I really enjoy teaching there too. And I suppose there must be something quite nice, you know, that idea of if you can help somebody on that journey that they're on, that you've been on yourself, if mm -hmm. you can just push them in the right direction or give them just that wee bit of encouragement or advice or help, then there must be something quite fulfilling about that for you as well. Oh yeah, I'm fascinated by what most of them have been through. And I think they need to give voice to that. In terms of the podcast, I always quite like this point where I go from asking you to name a book that you could recommend to anyone to a book that uh, I couldn't pay you to read again. And the book that you've chosen is Ulysses by James Joyce. Yep. <laughs> now, I, I know I'd, I'd read, and I think I'm right in saying one of the, the nonfiction books that you've written was 13 Ways at Looking at the Novel. And the basis for that was you had read 100 novels. And out of that came this book. And I think Ulysses was one of those 100 novels that you'd, you'd tackled. Yeah. I did. And I woke up the next day and I couldn't remember a thing that happened. The only thing I still can, I can still picture, uh, you know, the main character standing in the street, but that's all. And I decided that the language was just too complex for me. And I could not, I could make it through. I made it through and I wrote about it. I can't remember what I wrote about it, but I could never put together what it was pointing to or what it meant or what the story was and so I just wouldn't read it again because there's so many other books to read I'm not saying it's not a great book I'm sure it is 
but there's so many other books to read that that's not the one I'd go back to. I suppose these things are, are, are so subjective. It's interesting that you chose that book because it was one of those books that had always been on my mind to read. I've had a copy for about near enough 20 years. Somebody gave me it as a leaving present when I'd left a job. So I decided that for the new year, I would try reading it. And a couple of people had said to me, you just kind of have to let it wash over you. And, and you know, uh-huh. probably, it. yeah. So I started reading it and I got about 60 or 70 pages into it. And I'd read it maybe about 10 or 15 pages. And I thought, I have no idea what I've just read. I, haven't, I, couldn't, <laughs> I didn't understand the cultural references. I just, it was just words. And I thought, I just need to put it aside for just now and maybe have another go later because it was just, it was unfathomable to me. Yes. That's how. That's exactly how I would. I would describe it. The thing is, some you know that way. Sometimes you talk to someone. I'll talk to somebody who likes it, and they'll say, "Yeah, you need to give it a go." And then I'll speak to you, and, and you've you've managed to. You're a better person than me for having finished it. But then I'm thinking, <laughs> it's not really a ringing endorsement. Because <laughs> I suppose that's. Is, I know a lot of people find this difficult to choose a book they couldn't be paid to read again because, as you know, that the the effort that goes into writing any book, there's so much for every every author that puts into it. And then it's a subjective thing as to which readers like it or which readers Absolutely. don't. Absolutely. So and, it's always and get to make up their own mind. That's that's just the way it is. It's, so it's, it's kind of unfair in a way of unless you have a really visceral reaction towards it, then someone else might like the book that you don't like. But I think it, I have to say it might be a wee while before I, I tackle uh, Ulysses again. <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned there about the fact that you you do some teaching and that. If, if any of your students then go on to to become published writers. They're getting there. Some of them are getting there. Our program has produced some published writers, and it's also a performing arts program. So some of them have become screenwriters. And so I think some of them are getting there. I've only been doing it for about uh, five years in this program. Some of my students earlier went on to become published writers when I was teaching at Iowa, in Iowa. Let's talk about what I'm currently reading, because those books are both really interesting. Yeah, well, the, the, you've given me two choices in the, in the book that you're currently reading. And one is, the first of those would be the non-fiction book. And that's a memoir by the Irish actor Gabriel Byrne called Walking with Ghosts. Yes, that's a really interesting book. Um, and actually, I'm not reading it. I'm listening to it on Audible. And the best thing about listening to a Gabriel Byrne book on Audible is that he does the accents of all the dialogue so beautifully that you really feel like you're sitting there with a lot of people talking. But the other thing about this book is, and I had read his previous memoir. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but I read, I read that and listened to that. And this one is way more sad than that. It's like he returned to that first one and said, now I'm going to tell the truth. And it's one of the saddest books I've ever read or listened to but he's very honest and interspersed with all of this beautifully evoked sadness are, are these very funny bits so you know that he has a good sense of humor but he probably won't admit it you know because I, I wondered how that i'm curious how the book would have gone down in ireland for example because it's as you say he's, he's telling a truth that some people in ireland might still find uncomfortable about what happened or you know to not just to him but to, to other people as well? Well, I have no idea what the reaction in Ireland has been. It's just come out. But I'm guessing that it'd be re- the reaction that every nation has to a book that comes out that really tells the truth about them. You know, some people say, oh, 
how dare he and other people say, yeah, this is exactly what it is. And how do you find, do you, do you listen to a lot of books? You know, is that something that you do quite a lot? I especially like to listen to nonfiction um, because I don't know exactly why, but that seems to suit the audiobook world a little more than fiction. I think I, with fiction, I like to pay more attention to the sentences and read them myself. Because it's something I've not done yet. I, I, I know a lot of people, you know, a lot of people I work with, younger people seem to listen to audiobooks. So I'm curious to, to, to have a go at it at some point. Yeah, I love audiobooks. And a lot of it depends on the reader. The reader has to be able to bring out the feelings in the book. But nonfiction, you can hear the details. There's usually, if it's not a memoir, it's very straightforward. And it just going, you're just going, wow, did that really happen? That's really interesting. And I suppose for something like a memoir, you would really need Gabriel Byrne to be telling his own story. <laughs> yes. The other book that you chose, it was a fiction book, and it's a book by Amy Tan, and it's the, the Joy Luck Club. Well, that's a book that I'm teaching for school. I'm doing a course in novels based in family, and we've done a whole bunch of different ones. Um, and this is the one I'm, and I'll, all of them have been interesting. And this is the one I'm reading right now. And its depiction of Chinese life and Chinese American life is really enlightening for Americans. She's extremely detailed. The women speak for themselves about the things that they had to go through back in China before they came to San Francisco. And each story that they tell is very different. And it also has a big, the stories that they tell also have a big effect on their own daughters who were raised in America and, and living entirely different lives from the lives that these women lived back in China. So I'm about halfway through and I've read it before, but not for a long time. And I just find every page riveting. Because I was wondering, first of all, I think the book came out in 1989. So has it still got that? Obviously, it's, you know, it's quite a bit on in current times. It's still, it's still that relevance in terms of what it reveals about family. Oh, it's about... always relevant. Every family novel is relevant. I was hoping my students would have time to read Fathers and Sons by Ivan Turgenev. But I don't think we're going to, because I think it's going to take us a while to get through the Joy Luck Club. But Fathers and Sons is totally relevant now, too, even though it takes place in mid-19th century Russia. Human relationships don't change that much. And the way that we learn about past relationships is by reading novels about them, because the authors are very interested in how people relate to one another. And that's what novels are about. In terms of when you're reading that book, is that a different reading experience when you're reading it just as a, as a reader, as opposed to having to analyze it or deconstruct it in order to teach it? Uh, no, because my, my students want to be writers. So I want them to read it and enjoy it. And then in class, we sort of break it down and say, well, how did the author do this? How did the author do that? How did the author get you interested in this? How did the author get you interested in that? And the students always have varied reactions, but whatever their reaction, they learn from it. They learn from reading it. And I think broadening, I mean, as, as with me reading Oliver Twist in seventh grade, I think broadening your students' range of what they read is important because if they keep reading the same thing over and over again, or the same type of book over and over again, then they weren't, won't learn very much about how the novel works. Um, so if they read stuff that they wouldn't normally read 
they still learn from it, even if they don't totally enjoy it. I mean, is that something that, is that kind of a lifelong thing as well, for, you know, for, even for yourself? You know, I mentioned you'd read those hundred novels to write that book and, you know, the amount of books that you've read, you've written over the, the course of your career, but you still, sometimes when you read a book, are you still learning things as well? Of, oh, of course, things? yeah. Yeah, I learn a lot from all, I still do. I suppose that's quite exciting still as a reader as well as a writer that you <laughs> you never stop learning, I suppose. Well, there's so many books and they're all so different from one another that each one is a new experience and I still love reading. I mentioned, obviously, you know, the, your latest novel, The Strays of Paris, is just out in the UK. We, we talked about, you know, the fact that you were always working on something else. I take it then you always have, because you love writing, you're already working on your, your next novel as we speak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's just a never-ending process then. Um, it's a never-ending process, yeah. My, I just don't know how to pass the time unless I'm writing a book. I suppose I suppose the challenge for every writer just now, I'm, I'm guessing that if under normal circumstances you'd have probably been coming to the UK to do events to help the launch of the book. Obviously you can't do that. Is that a frustration or do you just have to adapt to this, the new reality of Zoom? You have to adapt to the new reality. Yeah, I would love to be coming to the UK, you know, because I have to go up to the Highlands and check out those McPhersons, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just not, wasn't part of the game this time. It's been fun to do the podcasts and the interviews, and that's been fun too. So that's just yeah, the way it is. Well, I have to say it's been a, a real joy talking to you. And um, obviously... You. The very fact that you, you revealed that uh, the reincarnation of Sid and Nancy appear in your novel is, is, is a, <laughs> for that alone, <laughs> it's been great. But um, I, I wish you every success with, uh, with The Strays of Paris. And well, thank thanks you. very much for, for uh, being on the podcast and sharing some of your favourite books with me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.